my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Today's interview is with Los Angeles-based lawyer Thomas DeBoe. With over 25 years of experience, Thomas works with individuals to achieve financial success. His legal services include business contracts, joint ventures, consumer transactions, and family law. Welcome to our Black Gay Diaspora, Thomas. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing good. How's the weather in Los Angeles right now? Well, actually, we're having some really nice, pleasant weather. Uh-huh. It's uh, sunny and probably in the mid-70s. Oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> Um, how are you in this moment overall? Like, how's your day? How's your week been? Well, the week's been good. I basically uh, work mostly at home because of the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to court as much as I would before. My clients usually contact me through the web or by telephone. Okay. And so I schedule sometimes appointments that way. But uh, today's been a relaxing day. I've enjoyed a walk around Echo Park Lake. I don't know if you remember that lake, but uh, it's right in the middle of the neighborhood. And it just reopened yesterday after being closed for a couple of months for uh, renovations. So that was nice. How was it during the pandemic, the Lake Echo Park? Well, it was a nice place to visit for a while. And then it sort of became sort of an encampment for people who didn't have a place to live. Uh, So there was some uh, controversy in the neighborhood as to should it be used as a park or encampment? That sort of continued for about a year or so, and now it's back to being a park. So hopefully the people that had to leave are in a good place. Yeah, there was some relocation of people, and the council person for the Echo Park did a lot of work in trying to find temporary shelter for the people who were in the park. For our listeners, Echo Park in Los Angeles is an area going towards downtown. Is it considered part of Hollywood or East Hollywood? No, I would say downtown. Echo Park was the first suburb of downtown. Los Angeles started what is now Bunker Hill that was like the main residential area for some people of uh, means or upper middle class. Uh-huh. And then Echo Park became a suburb of downtown Los Angeles. When all the houses were downtown, Echo Park was the suburb. We're still the suburb of downtown. I mean, it's only probably like 10-minute walk from Echo Park to downtown. If you want to take the bus, which I often did because the courts and the law libraries downtown. So I would just take a bus from Echo Park and I'd be there in like, you know, five, 10 minutes. Because of the pandemic, I haven't been using the bus as transportation much, but hopefully things will get back to the way it used to be and people will feel more comfortable using transportation again. How long have you lived in Echo Park? I first moved here in 78 when I was still in law school. And so I left the neighborhood, lived in New York City. I was in law school in New York City and came back and finished in Los Angeles. So in the 80s, I was back in Echo Park. And then early 90s, I moved to a neighborhood called Venice Beach and then back to Echo Park. So this last trip, I've been here for like, I think about 25 years. 
Okay, so you are officially a local. <laughs> yeah, they sort of gotten used to looking at my face. Now, are you originally from L.A., from Los Angeles? No, I'm from Kentucky, and the town is called Paducah. Paducah? Yeah, that's right, Paducah. I went to undergrad in uh, Kentucky at Murray State University. And then after I finished undergrad, I came to Los Angeles in the mid-70s. So did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? I sort of decided about my second year in undergrad. I grew up in high school when the schools were forced to be integrated. I grew up in like a time where social issues were a big part of my daily life. Mm. So I sort of got the idea that the law was really the way to try to navigate all these challenges. Yeah. A lot of people didn't have access to lawyers. They weren't able to sort of move forward, I didn't think. I thought I would become a lawyer and work for legal aid, which I did for a few years. Sounds like you were always thinking of people or of communities. I think Echo Park was the one place where I finally felt like I was part of the community. I just like the diversity in Echo Park in the late 70s and the 80s. It has a reputation of being a progressive neighborhood. All those things are very important to me. Okay. When I came to Los Angeles, I got involved in some gay rights issues, and I wanted a community that I could feel like I could just be myself and still be part of the community. So Echo Park became that community for me. That's good that you thought of that. It seems like a lot of us go to school or leave school focused on the career and not about the entire picture. I don't know. To me, it was very important to find a location to live where I could sort of reach my potential as a person, not be held back by a conservative community that tried to dictate who I should be. I found that in Echo Park. Now, what was it like growing up in Kentucky? Well, you can imagine it was pretty challenging. <laughs> when I went to uh, the high school, they had just integrated the high school. There was a large high school in the city and a smaller high school outside the city. I lived outside the city, so I went to the small high school. It was probably, I think, maybe about 600 students. And there were probably about 25 blocks who integrated that school. There was some tension. The way I dealt with it was that I decided that, for me, I was going to excel in the classroom. So that's where I did my competition. <laughs> it was memorable. That's a good word for it, memorable. <laughs> yeah, it was very memorable. <laughs> Did you always have plans of leaving Kentucky or leaving your hometown? You know, I didn't think that a small town in Kentucky was going to work for me in the long run. I hadn't really decided on Los Angeles until I came to visit my brother here for the summer, who was going to Cal State Fullerton. I had that visit like the year before I graduated from undergrad in Kentucky. And that's when I decided it was going to be Los Angeles. I thought it might be one of the larger cities closer to where I grew up. But after visiting Los Angeles, I thought, yeah, this is it. This is where I belong. I have a friend from a small town in Kansas, and she said the first time she came, she's like, this is it. Yeah, you, you, you just know it. It's like I went back and finished undergrad. And then within a week after graduation from college, I was on a plane to Los Angeles. Oh, that quickly. Yes. You mentioned that you decided on law your second year. Did you have another major before then? Well, actually, my first major was art in undergrad, and I changed that to mathematics. Oh, that's a big change. <laughs> yeah. So 
I majored in mathematics. In that time, you could minor, get a lesser degree, less units in art. My last year, when I knew I was going to go to law school, I started focuses on pre-law classes like economics, business, law, contracts, computer science. What I did was like my last year where most people will pick electives that are sort of like easy, cushy classes. I sort of like loaded up with very serious economics, accounting, business law. <laughs> so that's when I knew I was going to go to law school. And I knew I was going to go to law school right away. So came to, to Los Angeles and I got a job as a computer programmer. And then later I went to law school. So you were working and going to law school? No, I worked full time without law school for three years. Okay. Then I went to law school full time. Well, when you mentioned that you were doing the serious classes, I would guess that would put you ahead of the pack. Well, everyone always thought I was very serious anyway. So I guess I proved the point. You know, last year was supposed to be a fun year. But, you know, I was also involved in other activities at my college. I was editor of the yearbook and involved in my uh, fraternity. So I had a busy schedule. You know, I, I managed to schedule some fun here and there. So were you always focused and driven, even in your childhood? When you said, like, what was it like growing up in Kentucky? For me, it was finding a good book and escaping. So I read everything I could get my hands on. My favorite place in high school was the library. I would just pick up books and learn about authors I like, and I read a lot. Did you have a favorite author or book? The Probably the one book that meant the most to me when I was in high school was Malcolm X Speaks. Hmm. I found myself in a situation where I didn't really have a lot of power or authority and even identity. That concept that Malcolm X was really about your Black identity, of defining your own self mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about who you are as a Black person. And that was very important to me. I had not seen my high school graduates until I went back after 40 years to my high school reunion about 10 years ago, one of my students sort of posted like what they remembered about me. And she said, I remember in English class that uh, the teacher asked the room of students, what new subjects do you think we should be teaching in this high school? And she said to me that I said to her, I think they should be teaching black history. And she said at the time, she had no idea what black history was. So she had like gently asked me what that was. But what impressed me was that she said that my response was very kind <laughs> and that she went on, she became a teacher herself. And she actually remembered that and said that when she taught students, she tried to make sure that she brought that black history culture into her class. Mm, that's good. Yeah. So sometimes you think, you know, what you're saying casually in classroom is not going to be remembered. <laughs> But she did remember that. It seems like you said it in a way where it gave her a chance to pause and say, huh. <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, I try to be very diplomatic and I try to, you know, look at the other person's point of view as much as I possibly can. That skill has helped me as a lawyer. One of my community activities at Echo Park was I was elected the first president of the neighborhood council. Echo Park is full of a, a lot of strong personalities. That's the best way to put it. I had to like sort of try to be a person who would allow different perspectives to be able to voice their opinions within the council. So some of that experience in high school sort of came to focus. 
Yeah, but when you were just saying strong personalities, I thought, well, maybe that's helping you too in the courtroom. <laughs> it's like, if I can deal with this, I can deal with these people. <laughs> you do run into some uh, strong personalities in the courtroom also. Believe it at that. I can sort of see that my whole plan for being a lawyer and being involved, it sort of was built on my experience from high school and trying to see how I could like fit into the scheme and actually bring something to the table and have some knowledge and skills to help people. I think the other challenge about being a lawyer is that you do run into a lot of egos. It's a profession that attracts egos, I think. I think you discovered that when you're in law school. Mm. You mentioned that when you moved to L.A., you wanted to be in a community specifically around being a gay man where you could be yourself. Growing up, were you aware of that part of yourself early on? Yes. I grew up with my grandfather and my mother. My father was absent. And my grandfather was a Baptist minister. And my mother was uh, very religious, but not Baptist. So it was very difficult trying to explain to those two people that I was gay. But I did the best explanation I could do when I was basically about 16. And then after I came to Los Angeles for that summer, I started focusing on what was happening in Los Angeles around gay rights. And that was another reason why I decided to come here. But uh, I didn't really get a lot of support from my family about being gay. So I had decided that I needed to go and just sort of create my own life. And maybe at some point they would turn around or they would see what I was trying to do. But I didn't waste a lot of time trying to convince them <laughs> that I had a right to be the person I am. You didn't put your life on hold. No, I did not. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them wanted me to, but, yeah. but I said, thank you. But if it means going to another city, that's what I'll do. Okay. Now, were you, I don't know so much out like publicly, but was there like a gay community in the town that you grew up in? No, there was no gay community. There was no gay presence. We're talking about, you know, the 60s. Even in New York City, I mean, things didn't really kick off with gay rights as far as a mass movement until the end of the 60s. So 68, 69. And you're talking about a small town that things at least 10 years behind what's going on in the cities. So, no, there was no community in Paducah. There was just me. But I told you, I read a lot. So I would spend times in the library and I would read about what was going on in different parts of the country. Mm. So it was like in the mid-70s, there was a couple who was on the cover of Look magazine. The guy was uh, Jake Baker, and I can't remember his partner's name at the time. But they had actually tried to get married, I think like in 72. And they made the cover of Look magazine. There was an article about them, which I read because I would work in the library at the college. My connection was through print media. We didn't have internet. So I would just go to the library, research, go through the card catalog, find out everything I could possibly find out, read it. And that was my community. Yeah. I discovered through James Baldwin, the library too. Yeah. I didn't really uh, pick up on James Baldwin until later when I was in New York City. And then I read everything that James Baldwin had written. Being in his city it sort of made me think about how he saw the city. Mm. And uh, he was still writing novels when I was in New York in the late 70s, early 80s. I liked the way he described the city 
in different parts of the city. It sort of gave me a guide to navigate the city, actually through his eyes. So when I approached New York City, it was really through the eyes of James Baldwin. It was like the James Baldwin guide looked to New York City. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I found that very useful. Yeah. You said something about before the internet, and it just reminds me how we had to be like investigators in some ways. Yes. When we wanted to find out that part of ourselves. I'm glad I enjoyed reading because it made my world much bigger than the small town I was living in. It enabled me to know what was going on in other cities, other states, and other countries. And working in the library at, at Murray State University, I had a lot of time to read a lot of magazines and a lot of newspapers. My world was always bigger than where I was. I didn't have to accept what other people were telling me about what limits on my life they saw, because I saw a life for me that didn't have those limits. I didn't need to argue with them. It's just that I had my own data. <laughs> my own roadmap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I used it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I said, I'll see you later. I'm away to Los Angeles. No one believed me. Later, they discovered I was in Los Angeles. So were you in New York when the gay movement really kicked off? Well, I was in New York at the end of the 70s. It was a very strong gay presence. It was before the AIDS epidemic. There was a lot of celebration in the village and in New York City, a large presence of gay people in Manhattan. It was a magnet for gay people throughout the United States to be attracted to New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. I guess to a certain extent, Chicago. It was a time when the gay community was building and sort of defining itself. And it was an exciting time because there wasn't yet a clear definition of what it means to be a gay person. And it wasn't a clear definition of what it means to be a Black gay person. So there was a lot of room for self-discovery. Like the golden era, I thought of the Black Renaissance in the 20s. It sounds like that's how it was during that time period. Yeah, it was very much like that. And uh, there was a lot of creative Black gay people in New York City. I finally found a community that I was looking for in New York, more so than Los Angeles, as for a Black gay community. It was very strong in New York City. There was just a lot of you know, professional types. There were just creative types. Black people were everywhere in New York. <laughs> and it was a really good time, an exciting time to be both Black and gay. So you found your communities in both places pretty easily, as far as like specifically Black or gay? I've always uh, tried to like negotiate those two terms, because after I became a lawyer, I got involved in the Langston Bar Association, which is a Black bar association in Los Angeles. But as I discovered, also very conservative bar association, when my partner and I got married, in 2008, in California, when it first became legal, Prop 8 was passed shortly thereafter to stop same-sex couples from getting married. Different bar associations took a position. The county bar association took a position that Prop 8 was unconstitutional and that same-sex couples should continue to be able to get married. When that was in the courts, the Black Bar Association took the opposite view. So when I showed up with my husband at their discussion downtown, there wasn't a lot of support. So I've always had challenge 
with the Black Bar Association because they were not yet quite ready to see that gays' rights is very similar to Black rights. Even though the history and the struggle is different, the civil rights are very similar. And that is a minority having equal rights, even though their numbers are less than the majority. Not special rights, equal rights. It should be focused on law and constitution. Not whether or not you like the group, or whether or not your religion approves of the group. So you're saying, did I find it easy to negotiate those two things? Professionally, with the Black Bar Association, it's been difficult. It's been very challenging. But I don't go away. I think we, or me, I'll say, being an out gay man, kind of divorcing myself from my own emotional and mental well-being when I'm around certain conservative Black groups because I don't want to make them uncomfortable. But hearing that you took your partner to this event, I just commend you for that because you're just saying, I'm living my life. We know how the Black church is very important to the Black community. When it comes to gay rights, oftentimes the Black church is an obstacle to gay rights. That's the best way to put it. There certainly was an obstacle when I was young growing up in Kentucky. But I don't give up and I don't say, well, that's just the way it's going to be, because I really think about the civil rights movement. A lot of the white churches were against civil rights. There were some religious people who did support civil rights, but a lot of the mainstream white Baptist churches did not. I don't want to spend all my life fighting in some struggle, but occasionally something's very important to me. I personally think that lawyers should be able to get beyond their religious prejudices when analyzing legal rights of people. Yeah. So I try to encourage them to do that. That shouldn't be a foreign concept to lawyers. It's a discussion about the Constitution and the legal principles. I try to like balance my individual personal life from the struggles that I'm sometimes involved in because I don't want my whole life to be about struggle. But I've been able to find a balance in Echo Park, and people know me, they know I'm married, they know the person I'm married to, and uh, I participate in my community. I mean, who you are married to is very important to your life, and it's a very important part of who you are. I think I've found a community where I can be that person completely. You know, there are going to be challenges, but that's why I'm a lawyer. I'm trained to deal with challenges. I think a lot of us would give up on being our full selves because we don't want to deal with the challenge. It's work. You've got to have a balance. You can't be struggling every day. You know, racism has been a big topic lately. We know that's always there, but now all of a sudden it is a topic that people are discussing. I heard someone write and describe what's like as a black person deal with racism. You're always trying to defend yourself. You're always trying to like justify your existence. That takes a lot of energy. I try not to do that all the time. One thing I learned in New York City is that the best thing is to just open the door, go out there and be yourself. Just focus on that. The rest will work its way out. I need to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only way to, to really enjoy your life. In New York, I learned not to worry about what people thought or how I'm going to be perceived. You know, can I say this and not say that? New Yorkers are known for being straightforward. So I learned to incorporate some of that straightforwardness into my life. Each person 
regardless of skin color or sexual orientation, has a right to go out there and try to enjoy life and make life meaningful for that person. So it shouldn't be about trying to defend yourself. It should be about you trying to enjoy your life, make the contribution that you want to make, and make the best of being alive. And some people will like it, and some people won't like it. I find that there are people who will value you more for being yourself and being authentic. The thing about being authentic is that you don't have to mirror anybody else. You know, I don't have to mirror any other gay black man. I can be Thomas. I can be the person that Thomas is meant to be. I'm going to be the person who I know from the inside I am. And hopefully that will be a caring person and a person who respects other people and a, a person who achieves something. With that perspective and then in conjunction with your career as a lawyer, have you used that in helping the LGBT community? One of the things I did was I was a housing attorney for HIV, AIDS, and legal services for seven years. So mainly what I did was I uh, helped people in Los Angeles County who were HIV positive to deal with various housing issues, including housing issues with subsidized housing, housing issues with landlords, discrimination issues based on being gay or being HIV positive. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what I did was I decided that I needed to be the strength for my clients because some of my clients were very ill. It's stressful dealing with housing issues, even if you're healthy. It's incredibly stressful if you're ill. I was able to sort of like use some of my New York determination to sort of walk into court and be the strength for my clients and to be able to advocate for my clients and stand up for them and not be bullied by a system that might be stacked against them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that I found that rewarded. Especially, as you said, during the beginning of the epidemic, yeah, I would imagine. Whenever I can, I try to be that strength for someone who I think is feeling powerless or feeling overwhelmed by a system that they don't understand. One thing I also do is I teach at law school is that I can try to teach my clients as I go forward with their case because I want the client to be empowered after I help them and not feel that just that this lawyer saved today. I want them to feel that I can now do some things on my own because I learned some things. My perspective is the average person. When you need the law, when you need a lawyer, as you said, we don't know, so we're intimidated. And then sometimes the reputation we see in media of lawyers, you think, oh, this larger life ego, I'm just going to be like a number, or you know, if he remembers me at all. Only by participation do you feel empowered. If someone else is doing it for you, at the end of the process, you might get what you want, but you don't feel any more empowered. Now, you mentioned you teach. Where do you teach at? Uh, Southwestern Law School. I'm an adjunct professor, and I teach uh, public interest law practice. For students who are interested in doing public interest law. What exactly is public interest law? It's mainly just the other side of the coin of corporate law. Ah, I see. So it can be working for government. It could be working for legal aid. It could be working for civil rights. 
It could be representing some of these protesters and advising them. It could be representing people who are victim of police brutality. It can be anything that's going to serve a public interest. But it has to be something that you want to do because it's probably not going to be the most financially beneficial for you to be a public interest lawyer. Not that you can't make a good living. It's just that the focus has to be on the people that you're trying to help. I was a public defender downtown for my first job. We know that everybody who is accused has a right to an attorney, regardless of whether or not you can afford one. That's definitely a public interest. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, uh, you just educated me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people go into environmental law. That's definitely a public interest. Okay. Because when you're protecting the environment, you're protecting people. Yeah, that makes sense. Can we backtrack just a little? Because you talked about like the end of the 70s going into the 80s with the AIDS epidemic. How was living through that time period? It was difficult for me, like everybody else. You know, it's just having so many people die was devastating for all of us. I lost my share just like anyone else. I lost a partner. It happened at the time when I was practicing law, I was representing tenants. It sort of forced me to sort of like reconcile the conflict with my responsibility as an attorney to keep going forward. Unfortunately for me, my partner was, uh, parents were not supportive of him being gay and they were Catholic. My partner was white, and uh, I think his parents had a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was very difficult for me to try to like look after him and deal with the parents who were hostile toward the relationship. But I don't think I was the only person living that problem. You know, one of the devastating part about the AIDS epidemic is that people were dealing with families who were hostile to them for being gay on top of being sick. That's why I, you know, when I was representing people who were positive, that I saw that it was important for me to stand up for them because I know that often these people don't have family support. It was very difficult for all of us to deal with families who were not supportive of your health and hostile because you're gay and hostile because you and that relationship is the problem rather than you're the means of support. Right, right. That was the reality for a lot of us. A lot of gay people who were living in the city did not really have a lot of contacts with their parents until the end. My partner was very close to his parents, but they pretty much had ignored the fact that he was with me. And so when he got sick, it was difficult for them to ignore that because he basically spent his last weeks in our apartment. I think that experience for all of us was that in spite of the fact that a lot of these things seem not fair, that we had to find a solution to move forward. All of us who lost partners, who lost friends, we can honor those people by moving forward and by, as I said, being very authentic. And that's how we honor the people we lost. I just uh, rewatched a movie, a Swedish film. It's a current film, but it's about that time period and a lot of similarities to what you just shared. And then with you being a lawyer, I thought of too, like before gay marriage, even before domestic partnership, these relationships that we know are valid and were valid at that time were invalidated because of the laws that were in place 
are the laws that were not in place to recognize our relationships? Yeah, I wouldn't say they were invalidated. I think, you know, they tried to invalidate them. But yeah. it goes back to what I said was that I was never waiting for approval. It didn't really like change my attitudes. It pissed me off a lot sometimes, but <laughs> I didn't really feel like I needed approval to be myself or to choose who I wanted to be in a relationship with. Sometimes with, like you said, avoiding conflict, I would not insert myself in somebody's family if I didn't feel I was welcome there. But if you're going to come to my home, then you better get ready for the truth because it's not going to be hidden. And that's how I live my life. Not apologizing or groveling. Now, you mentioned you got married in 2008 before Prop 8. How was that emotionally? And then also just as a lawyer, you know, seeing that come down and then thankfully where we're at now. As a lawyer, I had sort of analyzed the possibilities of what would happen if Prop 8 passed. And I actually had lunch with some of my colleagues, someone who I knew who uh, worked for uh, Lambda Legal at the time. We talked about, you know, what we thought the passage of Prop 8 would have on people who had already gotten married. And I was pretty convinced that the courts could not say, we're going to unmarry you. You know, in California, there was some confusion because, well, we had a mayor of San Francisco, who is now the governor of California, who had said that he thought that same-sex couples should get married. And he proclaimed that from City Hall in San Francisco, a whole bunch of people rushed out and got married. And then the court said, no, you're not married. But this is a little different because when we got married in September of 2008, the courts had said that gay people should be able to get married. So it wasn't like a politician. The court said that, the Supreme Court of California. So I didn't think the Supreme Court of California was going to say we were wrong, that you're not married after all. But what the Supreme Court of California did say was that no one else can call it marriage. I still feel I have a hard time trying to reconcile that Supreme Court decision, California State Supreme Court decision. It sort of muddled the waters, basically. Yeah. So... We were legally married in California. The federal government didn't recognize our marriage. Anything benefits that had to do with the federal government, we were not recognized as married. It took some legal gymnastics to uh, endure those years until like in 2013, then it became legal to get married in California. Then 2015, it became legal to get married in all the states. And the federal government then started recognizing same-sex marriages. But for the time between 2008 and 2015, it was difficult. People would ask you, are you married? I was like, of course we're married. No one understood. The whole concept of marriage should be that it's a clear definition and that you either are or you're not. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But to a lot of people during that period of time, they didn't know if I was or I was not. I didn't question it because I had looked at all the legal decisions, and I had looked at all the legal principles, and I had made a decision myself that I didn't need anybody else to reinforce. And I just, with my legal knowledge, tried to reinforce with my husband so he would feel secure also. That was just me deciding that I had no question. I was married. I was going to be treated fairly as a married person, and I wasn't going to, like, ask for permission. It feels like you're in purgatory. It was sad because no one else could get married. 
it wasn't quite as joyous as it should have been because the door was closed shut. I was at work, I remember when I heard it, and a woman who was getting married, she had a gay brother, so I knew her stance on it, but I remember they threw the surprise shower for her, and then this decision came down, and just looking around the room and saying, how many of you? My main concern was just reinforcing with my husband our status and what we needed to do each year with the different regulations, federal being different from the state. Now, when it became the law of the land or when it became legal throughout the states, did you have to do anything legally? No, they were not going to tell me to do something else. I don't need to do anything else. I'm married. I'm glad you guys have come to the conclusion that other people can get married now. Now, from a legal standpoint, were you surprised that it happened when it did in 2015? I was joyously surprised, yes. I didn't really count on it. I mean, we had all studied all the justices and read about their backgrounds. And, you know, me as a lawyer, I read all their decisions about gay rights. And it was a five to four decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. No one had any certainty about how this was going to come down. It brought a lot of joy because it created some clarity for the country. It creates a lot of problems when you're married in one state, but not the next state. When you go traveling, which a lot of us do, and you end up in a state where it doesn't recognize your marriage, and for any reason you need to like go to the hospital and or have medical treatment, and you want your partner there who's married to you, and they may not honor that as your family member. It was a real issue because marriage makes them your family member. That's one thing that the marriage does that you know we didn't have before domestic partnership and marriage is that when there was a medical crisis, sometimes we couldn't be in the room with our partners because the hospital wouldn't recognize us as family members. We were reluctant to travel, basically, during that time to different states. And it goes back to, you know, reducing relationships to, at least gay relationships to the act of sex. It was always much bigger than that. The resistance I got from the Black Bar Association is that they don't want to give the dignity and respect to those couples. That's the bottom line. That's playing the same game as uh, the dominant group or the majority. Yes, exactly. You mentioned at the beginning that you haven't been in the court. How will you transition back into that? You know, the courts will continue no matter what. <laughs> so the cases are going. It's just that the cases are not going as fast as they used to go. People are not eager to show up for jury duty. And so the courts uh, limit it to how many cases it can proceed without a jury to hear those cases. It's not just the lawyers that keep the courts going. It's jurors also. The courts downtown are always packed, and it's always been a problem with calendar and events. But uh, some lawyers are continuing to show up because the wills of justice have to keep going. There's a lot of conference hearings when we can do that. A lot of attorneys who don't have to make appearances uh, make an appearances through the Internet. I know in other uh, professions, it seems like either it's here to stay or it's going to be an option. Do you think with the courts, will they split it up to where some are in person and some are online? 
I think that lawyers and judges will agree that a lot of things don't need to be in person. <laughs> There's absolutely no reason why you can't do it by video and online. It just makes sense. I mean, you know how Los Angeles is in the traffic and driving from the west side to downtown for a hearing that takes, you know, 20 minutes and you got to be there all day. I can see that, the benefit of that. As someone who lived in L.A. for a long time. <laughs> That's why I say there's no going back to normal. We're in a new universe now. That's true. We might as well just accept it. We're going to be looking at each other on screen more often. More often. <laughs> Dressed up from the waist up. <laughs> I say now that we're all amateur newscasters. <laughs> what do you do apart from law to have fun or unwind? Now that I can walk around the lake, that's one of my favorite things to do. You know, I miss not being able to go to the theater and my husband's an artist, so I miss not being able to go to his shows and shows of other artists. Hopefully some of that will start up again. One of the pleasures of being married to an artist is that I go to a lot of art events. <laughs> and I really enjoy that. I'm looking forward to going back to the museums and art exhibitions. I like cycling in, in Venice Beach. And so being able to do some more of those outdoor things. I like jazz and I like listening to Sir Vaughn. Oh, she had a beautiful voice. Similar to a doctor, do you ever get friends or new acquaintances that want to pull you aside at a little get-together or party and get some free advice? Oh, you know, Eric, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to come up with some skills of dealing with that, too. Everybody in my community knows I'm a lawyer. Standing in Trader Joe's line, someone wants to talk to me about some legal issue. I mean, I'm shopping. <laughs> you know, can you see I'm shopping? <laughs> <laughs> I try to get my groceries like anybody else. But I understand where they're coming from. People want to talk about things when they see you and they think that they have an opportunity, even parties. I try to let people know that I have an office and I give them my office number and encourage them to call me. That's a good way to do it. You get better results when the professional person has time to focus his attention or her attention on whatever it is you're presenting to them. I can't focus that clearly as I'm trying to pick out which apple to buy, <laughs> which, which vegetable looks the best. <laughs> That's a great image, I see. <laughs> <laughs> then I see, too, the next scene where they're getting handcuffs slapped on them. And they're like, I don't understand. It's like, you gave me five minutes to tell you that. Yeah, you got a five-minute solution. You're exactly right. And because they will fill in all the stuff you didn't tell them on their own. True. You know, it comes with the territory. But I think with experience, I've learned to negotiate that. That's the only way to like manage your life where you're not always stressed out with work situations. Professionals need time off, too. Well, I really enjoy this. Yeah, it's been very enjoyable. Thank you for asking me to do this. I appreciate it. Is there anywhere we can find you online? Yeah, my webpage is my name, thomasdebow.com. Okay. All my contact information is on my webpage. And there's a lot of useful information too, legal. So I don't have to corner you by the produce at Trader Joe's. <laughs> exactly. You can come to my webpage and get some information. <laughs> and I'll tell everybody else to do the same. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's been good talking to you again, Eric. 
Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.